0: the Mike Tamano happening Welcome to the Mike Tamano happening as we cruise into the holiday season I hope you and yours are having a wonderful uh, Christmas time Family get-together celebration. We came out of Thanksgiving headlong into the shopping frenzy. Our attempts to reflect on the season and hope that it lasts all year long. Now, you know, I've made a commitment to embrace the winter, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, It is a beautiful... See? I'm already starting. Be optimistic. A beautiful, brisk 31 degrees in Illinois. It's not at the point where you feel it in your marrow or where the breath freezes in your nostrils not yet but it will be i'm guessing in the next day or so we'll get a, a blast of that but it builds character and i'm embracing the winter i love the winter that's the first time i've ever said those words do i mean it i'm gonna convince myself i mean it today we're talking to the art of sketch comedy great sketches that live on in the pantheon of comedy from sid Caesar's show of shows to the carol Burnett show to Saturday Night Live, at least the first few seasons, and bits and pieces throughout the years, probably not in the last five or ten years. And, of course, the amazing Second City Television, SCTV, which, to me, is as wonderful as it gets. You know, in my early teen years, I began collecting comedy albums, and I still do. I've amassed a huge collection. You know, I started with the classics from George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Robert Klein, and I would listen to them, I would laugh, and I would enjoy the jokes, but then I would study them, and I still do. You can't beat those guys. I studied them, the cadence, the rhythm, and the structure of their finely crafted humor. It mesmerized me. And without a doubt being a child of the 70s meant that Cheech and Chong were ubiquitous among all my friends and anyone who was able to sneak into their parents or their older siblings record collections and Cheech and Chong's humor you know sophomoric oftentimes moronic however they're charming and frequently hysterical but listening As an aspiring creative person, I was drawn into their use of sound effects in presenting their recorded sketches. You know, a genius in the world of recorded sketch comedy, Stan Freeberg, remains a tremendous influence on me. And I always love the idea of stories being told through audio. Old-time radio comedy shows, Fred Allen and W.C. Fields... And the shadow, you know, the mystery stuff. I I love the idea of an auditory consumption of a story and allowing your brain, your third eye to create the images that go along with it. I still love that. I relish it. And so I think that's where I got so heavily into sketch comedy that was recorded. And I don't know when I first heard the National Lampoon Radio Hour. For some reason, I... I believe it might have been on Chicago's WXRT in the late 70s. But as I've researched that recently, I'm not so sure. So it might have been that I picked up their albums, Golden Turkey and Radio Dinner, because I was familiar with the magazine, which was just a profound impact on me. So maybe I imagined it or I don't know. I I remember hearing it on the radio because I remember... Brought to you by 7up, the unsponsor. Hmm. Whatever the case, Nash Lampoon in both magazine and recorded sketch form uh, shaped my comic sensibilities and created the foundation of what I envisioned my own radio show to be one day. And I've touched upon that stuff, you know, and I still use um, sound effects. I still use character voices on my radio show, I owe it all to those sketch comedy records and television shows that I grew up with. And the first time I heard Firesign Theater was around the age of 10. I would cross the street each day and hang out with my best friend, Mora. And her house was a treasure trove of music. Let's see. There was Mora, Carol, Sheila, Ellen, Brian, TJ, Pat. So she had six older Irish Catholic families on the south side of Chicago. God bless them. So she was the youngest of seven. And we would rifle through her older brothers and sisters record collections. And one fateful day, I found an album that was called, I think we're all bozos on this bus what i considered to be a band called Firesign theater but i knew it had to be something really weird and bizarre and i had been delving into zappa so i knew that comedy and music oftentimes in that era were being mixed up a little bit and um i put this record on and it was unlike anything i'd ever heard there was overlapping dialogue uh multiple stories going on bizarre puns and it was kind of like a psychedelic sound collage with rapid fire multi-layered humor and it demanded repeated listenings and i took that album and borrowed it and listened to it over and over and then of course i went out and collected all the firesign theater records that i could find and four decades later revisiting the firesign catalog of genius recordings still rewards the listener with new discoveries it's amazing stuff as we continue to dig into my interview vaults to wrap up the year, I'm gonna present an interview with Fire Sign Theater member Phil Proctor, and then we're gonna segue into an interview an interview I did with Murphy Dunn. He's best known as Murph the Keyboardist, Murph and the Murph Tones in the Blues Brothers movie. But he's a true renaissance man in the world of entertainment and His roots are in sketch comedy as well, starting at Chicago's Second City, and he was also part of an early 70s counterculture sketch comedy group called the Conception Corporation. So if you're into sketch comedy, if you're into comedy writing, if you're into just uh, great showbiz stories, strap yourself in. Phil Proctor and Murphy Dunn. I hope you enjoy these interviews with two comedy legends on the Mike Tomano Happening. Like Monty Python, National Lampoon, and other names that we bandy about here on the show, the name Firesign Theatre denotes comedy royalty, and the group's work not only represents some of the most original and wildly creative hilarity in humor history, but it's cherished by rabid fans. There's there's no such thing as a passive, sometimes. Lukewarm Firesign Theater fan. So it's my great pleasure today to speak with Firesign Theater member Phil Proctor. Phil, welcome to the Mike Tomano Show.
1: Hey, thanks, Mike. But I, I do want to point out in your intro that we're not so much royalty as we are royalties. Royalties, there you That's go. That's right. Okay. Royalties. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the important part of the of, of uh, the recording industry, at least. Right. And that's how that's how we got started, you know. We uh, we started actually on the radio. This was KPFK, listener-supported radio in Los Angeles, and we'd actually sit around a table uh, late at night, uh, the four of us, and improvise and take calls from people. And this was back in the, the mid-60s to late 60s. And uh, once we decided that we had something going, because first of all, we found out we were all fired signs I'm a Leo there are two Sagittarians and an Aries and we were on Peter Bergman's Radio Free Eye show and Peter Bergman who was my classmate at Yale he was the Wizard of Oz and this this show was his creation it was really the first counterculture talk show he, he innovated a lot of great ideas but once we found out that we had something going we could like riff like jazz musicians and we had a, a, a very funny surrealistic sense of humor in common uh, 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 Phil Austin who had been doing a record uh, with a guy, uh, a producer named Gary Usher, who was quite a respected producer uh, at the time at Columbia Records. Well, he wrangled a deal to do a phonograph record, and once we we and it was called at that time the Oz Fire Sign Theater. Uh, Gary actually approached Bergman and said, "I want to do a, a, a radio free Oz record," and Peter said, "No, no, no, you're going to do a, a an Oz Fire Sign Theater record." And he said, well, what, what's the Fire Sign Theater?" And he said. Well, uh, uh, you'll find out. Yeah. So... So he signed us up, and uh, and we wrote the, our first... Well, there's a story about how that all came about, too. But the fact is that once we made a record, we were able to put un, really uncensored... We could put our material out on the marketplace, and people could buy it or not buy it, and they could take it home and listen to it in the privacy of their own living rooms or wherever the hell their bathroom, if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was a particular kind of bizarre entertainment freedom, and it allowed us to uh, create work in a studio that was multi-layered and that basically uh, for us was a continuation of radio comedy as we grew up listening to it as young men uh, in our own lives And, and it was only because people supported the record that we were able to have a career I mean this was really pure you know there wasn't even a lot of promotion or anything going on at the time and our first record was mildly successful but uh, at the same time that we were releasing records the fm radio revolution was just beginning and all of a sudden these college stations could play an entire half hour of our records on the air to their, you know, to their audience, and this was also an innovation, and that's how we started to get followers in the uh, uh, young young followers in the college uh, uh, arena, mm-hmm. and that promoted us to the record company because they suddenly saw a peak in in sales, and uh, one particular guy uh, uh, at the Columbia Records went in and stood up for us. He was the head. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. John somebody. He was the head of the. The spoken arts division and he said because they were thinking of dumping us they didn't know who fireside theater was and you know mild, mild sales of our record crazy title and he said no these guys are geniuses and you should stick with we should stick with them and he said I want to offer them a spoken arts contract which means that that we didn't have to pay for any of our studio time okay and uh, we traded that for a reduced royalty thank you your Majesty yeah but but we were able to go in and and, and use as many hours in the studio as we wanted to to create the kind of records that we heard in our heads and that was a tremendous uh, boost for us so our yeah. second record you know how can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all uh was a much much bigger hit and that was what got us started on our career and one of the reasons that that was such a big hit was that we put uh nick danger third eye on the flip side of the record Yes, mm-hmm. dear friends, for those of you born, you know, yeah. uh, in the last 20 years, records used to have two sides. <laughs> right? Whoa, side A and side B. Oh, man. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, Nick Danger only got on the record because we were at that time working, I think, at KRLA or, or some other station. We we worked at a lot of, of local radio stations uh, in different iterations of Radio Free Oz. And we had written Nick Danger to be a regular a series on our radio show. Okay, so we wrote this pilot, if you will, and we went in to, uh, to, to 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 do it on the air on at a regular time slot on this station, and we discovered that the station was padlocked and we couldn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> they, they changed management overnight. I think it was now all kosher cowboys songs. I have I been know. there. I have yeah, been right? there. Over yeah, Twenty yeah.
0: years in radio. I've been there. Any that. anybody in radio <laughs> knows
1: what. That's like what you know what what my show is gone yeah, everybody's you know? gone what happened right yeah, what happened yeah so we said well what the hell are we going to do with this you know and and uh, we obviously figured out well let's put it on the record yeah and and it turned out that that was the best thing that could have happened to us because Nick Danger Third Eye which we then adopted further for for side B uh, turned out to be very accessible to lots of people because they could see what we were parodying we were making fun of of the, the uh, detective noir movies and the, the old detective, very popular detective radio series, right? right? And people could glom onto that, because everybody had, had uh, a hook in it, you know, or an opinion about it or a history from it. And that's, I think, is what really kick-started our career. And then the next album uh, was Don't Crush That Dwarf Handy the Pliers. And that album came out of another thing that we were able to do as a four-man group. We could perform on a local stage and work out our material, much in the way the Marx Brothers used to do before they'd go in and shoot a movie. Right. They used to go up to a theater in Santa Barbara, which we played many times, and and uh, and stand their shows up and work out stuff. And then when they felt they were ready, they turned it over to their their writers, Kaufman and Hard, or whoever the hell it was, and they'd punch up a movie using the routines that they knew were going to work for an audience. Well, we did the same thing on a stage. Of a little club called the Ashgrove, which was kind of a, a, a lefty uh, folk song, um, early rock and roll uh, musical uh, venue that occasionally did comedy us, and then later the credibility gap with Harry Shearer and all those great dudes, but we we were the trailblazers for them, and we could go in and work out our material. So our next album, was we, we wanted to do an album about channel surfing before it existed and uh, we called it a life in the day inspired by a day in the life the Beatles album a lot of our stuff was inspired by the Beatles albums by the way yeah well it Uh,
0: seems like you know you're coming up and you're listening to the radio shows and to me it's like Stan Freeberg and the Marx Brothers absurdism filtered through Sgt. Pepper's post-era you know
1: yeah that's right we were a mash uh, of uh, of uh, the Beatles <coughs> pardon me <clears throat> of their of their wonderful uh, storytelling ability in their songs and in their albums, because uh, they created unified albums too. And they were they were fans of ours. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet John Lennon at one point. I gave him a, a not insane button, which shows up occasionally in documentaries and pictures uh, of him at that at that particular time. But they inspired us, and we in our own way inspired them, which is really cool, uh, to a lesser degree obviously. But don't crush that dwarf family the pliers. Uh, which is the title of that of that album became a uh, a monster hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, let me clear my throat. Hold on. Sure. Phil Proctor. <laughs> I'm, clearing not, the I'm not used to getting up this early. It's <laughs> <laughs> ten o'clock out here. <laughs> anyway, that became a monster hit, and that's the album that the, that had a great cultural effect, and that's why it's actually in the library, uh, the Congressional Library, now as an historical recording.
0: Yeah, and the greatest title ever for a record.
1: Yeah, it was a strange title. It, it was inspired... Uh, at the time, we were working on a, a film called Zachariah. Mm-hmm. And we were working with uh, uh, a director named uh, Joe, Joe Masseau, who had done a documentary on the Beatles back in, in England. and uh, And he eventually dropped out of the film, and our producer... Uh, um, whose name will come to me at some point a uh, pretty famous producer he t- took over as a director which wasn't really right for the film because uh, this particular fellow was much more straight laced and didn't really understand the psychedelic world that we were trying to create in that in that crazy movie which was an adaptation of Siddhartha in the old west well yeah. I'm sure that stopped a lot of listeners mm-hmm. right there <laughs> That's a hard,
0: that would be a hard <laughs> pitch for Hollywood today <laughs> yeah who's that? Who's <laughs> Who's Sid Sid Who? Is he, uh, Sid know, Caesar? A but, uh, comedian? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you so, know anyway. The great thing about that movie is it has a cameo by uh, legendary jazz drummer
1: Elvin Jones. Yeah, indeed it does. And yeah. Country Joe and the Fish, right? Joe Walsh, it. yeah. Yeah, and and John Rubenstein yeah. was one of his first movies, and and Don Johnson. Yes. It was a real break for Don Johnson, uh, and they all went on to the great fame and fortune. Rubenstein is touring with uh, uh, Pippin right now. Mm. playing playing an older role where he originated the role of pippin he 's an old friend of mine, but anyway that that particular title. Came out of uh, we were doing some writing sessions for um, uh, this film, Zechariah, mm-hmm. uh, called the first psychedelic western, and it, oh, well, please, that that's another whole bizarre story. Uh, but but uh, when we were doing that, one of the I had some old sheet music, which was a First World War song about uh, cr- crush the Hun, okay, the Hun being crush crush the dwarf Hun or something like that, a derogatory song about the the German in the First World War. And David Osman thought that was really funny and that that should, you know, be a part of our title. And then we we also added two other thoughts. D- during the Second World War, uh, little people used to be hired to work inside the wings of planes when they were mass-producing them for the war because mm-hmm. they, could, they could do riveting from the in- inside because they were d- of diminutive stature. So they were using small people to help in the war effort, to help, you know, the American culture survive. And then we thought about when something goes wrong. And in those days, most of us had black and white televisions. And every once in a while, the cathode ray tube, which was this big, big tube that allowed television to exist, would go on the wonk. And what would happen is that instead of getting a full picture, it would reduce itself to like a strip of, of, of uh, vision, <laughs> you know, a, a strip of, of a broadcast, and it was like, yeah. and you had to go around in the back of the set and adjust, a, a, a tur- turn a little knob to try to make it bigger, and it was like, don't crush that dwarf, hand me the pliers. The pliers came in the back, to, you had, it was a tiny little knob, and you sometimes had to use pliers to actually make the picture bigger. All right, so all this insanity, this madness right. uh, in, in the title was was of course uh, uh, epitomized by the album, which was a, a history uh, a story told through flipping channels on television mm-hmm. and, you know and we staged it that way too, so that we'd make rapid costume changes and flicker lights and we'd suddenly be in another place and as, as I said, it became one of our most popular albums because television. Uh, surfing was beginning to happen on a on a big level, and and t- and television was becoming more sophisticated, and uh, and and more colorful, and all kinds of better things were happening to it. So we've we've always been on top of of cultural changes, technological changes, but we also were always predicting what's going to be the next big thing. Yeah. Now,
0: the material you wrote and produced is, I mean, you listen to these records and, you know, the notion once existed that, well, a comedy record, once you hear it, you know the joke. Yeah. But that, you guys destroyed that notion because your stuff is so layered, so much nuance, little asides and tangents and hidden gems of wit that I have to, you know, after 40 years of listening to these records, I still discover new stuff each time. How did the group write? I mean, how did you know, A... When a particular bit was finished, and
1: and yep, the I got process, you, that's a, that's you know, a, that's a, that's a good question, and I'm sorry you asked it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But the fact is that uh, we would sit around a t- in in the early days. We'd sit around a table at, at one of our houses, uh, uh, and we, we we would smoke a little weed and we would drink a little brandy, usually El Presidente. That's why El Presidente is one of our characters. Right. And and we would we would uh, start to uh, to jive about what we wanted to write about, and then once we got a, a hook into it and agreed on what we wanted. The story we wanted to tell, uh, we, we took our clues from a show called The Goon Show, mm-hmm. okay? The Goon Show was a very, very, very popular long-running show in England, and it was a surrealistic, absolutely crazy, off-the-wall comedy show right. that originally had four guys doing it, including Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan, right. who were probably the most well-known, and Harry yep. and and they had a live band, and they would add crazy... S- and their sound effects were absolutely insane. Yes. And, you know, very surreal and very wonderful. And every, month, every week, rather, they would write a, a funny half hour show. And we would do this on one of our radio shows. We did an early iteration of Prairie Home Companion uh, at a club called The Magic Mushroom. And every week we would write a half hour comedy goon show style piece. And the scripts for that are actually now available at firesigntheater.com, uh in a, a collection called, not marching to Shibboleth, uh, uh, Portraits in Barbecue Sauce, I believe right. it is. We have three new books out, and and, uh, and I, I get confused as to which is which. But if you go to the FiresignTheatre.com website, you'll find that. Plus, uh, a wonderful book called uh, Duke of Madness Motors, which has 80 hours of our early, television, uh, our early radio shows on an MP3. Isn't that something? Wow. So anyway... We got into a a really good writing style together by doing a a weekly comedy show that we would then perform live before an audience, and this got our chops really up, because a lot of the stuff that we do on the radio was more improvised comedy, and we sometimes bring in written pieces that we would surprise our our partners with, or a piece for everybody that we would perform live on the radio, and sometimes that became, uh, our material, the basis for uh, another piece but once we'd agreed on something we'd start to write from the beginning to the end just like anybody would write a play or a, a, a story and and as we wrote it uh it became it would become clear the, we're like laying out the bones of the story It it become clear what kind of characters we had to become mm-hmm. and what kind of story we were going to tell and then we would bring in material every day based on how we felt the story was going to go where we we wanted it to go and what kind of characters we would like to become in it so we'd flesh it out and often even we wouldn't be exactly sure how it was going to end okay but it didn't matter we had unlimited studio time so we would go in with like say the first 10 pages Great. and we'd lay it down in the studio Now, as a corollary, and that would guide us, because now we were performing the studio material live and listening to it and and watching it evolve and improvising on it. And when we had satisfactorily laid down 10 minutes of track or whatever it turned out to be, we went back with a a revived confidence to carry the story forward, because now we brought our characters to life, and we brought our story to life, and it made it much clearer to us where we were going. But what a unique opportunity we had to be able to work this way, you know? And we didn't have to put a a great time constraint on us. We had a contract with Columbia that that, um, required us to produce a certain number of records in a certain time, Frame, but we were still under no enormous pressure to get the thing in. You know, at a, at a given date, we could figure that out ourselves. So, the the one thing that we really learned from this, and this was the longest lesson in the in the the thirty years or so that we were actually doing this. Uh, although we could continue to perform for another ten or fifteen years, uh, we would sometimes reach a stalemate because there's four guys, right? right. And it's four different iterations. If you got two guys, it's an argument which can be solved because one is going to win. If you got three guys, you have to get all three guys together if you really want it to work, but you got you can get two against one, right? Mm-hmm. If you got four guys, you've got two against two, one against three, you know, it's much harder, uh, or, or four different opinions, and it's much harder to come to a consensus, and that's why we call ourselves in our nickname the four or five crazy guys, because the fifth Crazy guy was the guy who finally said, "Okay, this is what we're going to put down. This is what we're going to type. All right? right, this is the this is the consensus of opinion or the compromise." Well, we would sometimes reach these stalemates. It would go on for days. Where's the story going to go? Or what's the, what's the twist? Or what are we what are we saying that doesn't need to be said? And what are we saying that absolutely has to be said? And then we and we painstakingly type out whatever the solution to that was, and we take it into the studio and. More times than not, we would throw it out yeah. and improvise something differently. Right, <laughs> right. right. And, and so but, we're going. Why did we spend all that? It, time? it was just a jumping-off right? point, right? Yeah, and, and, and slowly but surely, we learned to trust that because it's a little scary, you know. Yeah. Well, we don't really have this scene, but let's take it in and let's shoot it. <laughs> Hi, this is Patty Smith, and you're listening
2: to Mike Tomano. My, my, my candle. Thank you. You're marvelous. You're marvelous. Thank you. I'm Murph, and these are the Magic Tones. Steve the Colonel Cropper, Donald Duck Dunn, Willie Too Big Hall, and Tom Bones Malone. We'll be back with the Magic Tones for the Armada Room's two-hour disco swing party after this short break. Till then... Don't you go changing.
0: Well, joining us today on the Mike Tomano Show is actor-musician Murphy Dunn, who has uh, entertained us for years, and Murphy, of course, known for playing himself in the Blues Brothers, but so much more. Welcome to the program, Murphy. Mike, great to be with you. It's How's great. the weather there? You know, it, 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 if you don't like it, wait a minute, right? That's that's pretty <laughs> much it, it, it. You grew up in Chicago, so I want to kind of talk about you know how, how your Chicago upbringing uh, shaped your career, and then about your initial move to the west coast
2: sure well I uh, grew up on the near north side uh, kind of in the area around Rush Street Mm -hmm. and it was my father's political bailiwick and it it was kind of a you know in the fifties it was kind of wild, and the early sixties it was, it was kind of great. We, we lived on a street called Chestnut Street, around State Street between Russian and the Wabash area. And uh, Holy Name Cathedral is where I uh, I was thinking the other day when I had to get up very early. Uh, my mom and I would uh, go to church at Holy Name Cathedral. I was an altar boy, and uh in Latin. And I'm just reminding about, you know, if you, if you <laughs> say mass as an altar boy, was, you had to get up, you know, at five o'clock and uh, walk to church in that weather and <laughs> say mass. And I'll tell you. I don't think
0: they do it that way anymore. I, I wonder if the kids in Catholic school are still learning Latin, because that was the uh-huh. big thing when you. Because w- I had the last name Tomano, and going to um, to Catholic school, I went to St. Rita on the far south side. Sure, sure, sure. And I remember it like you would just sign up for a language. They didn't tell you what language. So everybody wanted to get Spanish because that was A applicable and B it was it wasn't that hard to learn. And then the last thing you wanted to get was Latin, but the, the almost as bad was French. And of course, I got because I was a T, they just went down the list. I got French. So I, I escaped <laughs> Latin. But I remember seeing the kids that, w- that would get Latin and they just they looked like, you know,
2: they had lost oh, all hope. terrible. <laughs> terrible. I had. I went to. I took the uh, Lake Street L and went out to Fenwick. Okay. And and uh, had to have two years. We had to have four years of a language. So I had two years of Spanish and two years of Latin. And as most of your your listeners know, Latin is a dead language.
0: Yeah.
2: There's not a lot of conversing in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know, hey, And and try to translate that. You know, to, it just it, it doesn't happen. But oh, Spanish. A, a friend of mine was uh, a terrific artist, and when he was a high school graduate, he was the number one artist in in America. So he got the chance to go to the White House and meet uh, Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton said, "I've got I've got a little advice for you." Learn Spanish. <laughs> there you go. There. And it really comes in handy. So I'm, I'm glad I kept, kept it up. And, you know, in Southern California, it'll soon be the Preferred language of everyone, I think.
0: And Latin is not something I think when they ask you on a job application, you know, are you bilingual? They're not expecting Latin. Because
2: <laughs> they're not expecting Latin. I think if you wanted to become a pharmacist, it, it might be a, a good language for you to study. Because there's a lot of the root words come from Latin and, and Spanish as well, obviously.
0: So it might Spanish. enhance the job, yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What was St. Rita's like for you?
0: Uh it was okay. It was um it was, well, actually I have I don't have a lot of love for those years uh, other than, you know, the friendship. I I was a, a class clown and I was uh, I was like a social butterfly back then. I kind of fit into every group. I could hang with the jocks, I could hang with the with the goofballs and the nerds and I so I, I had kind of a John Hughesian if you will. Uh, oh, that's high school,
2: great. yeah, and at the same that's time,
0: it, I, d- I was working at a concert promoter in Chicago, so it was almost a Ferris Bueller type situation.
2: Didn't Ray Manzarek go yeah.
0: to Saint? Yeah. yeah, he was a 1957 a- graduate of of Saint reader my- Ray Manzarek of the of the, uh, of the Doors, yeah, yeah, right. And I think there's another. Far- Isn't um uh,
2: didn't um Ed Farmer go to Saint Rita? I believe he did. Farmer? Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The, the broadcaster, the color guy. Yes,
0: for the White Sox. The yeah. White Sox, yeah. Right, he's a good man. Yeah. He's a
2: good buddy of mine. And he always brags about it. He said, yeah, the of stinks stinks.
0: Yeah. Well, there's they always been a rivalry. It. Yeah, see? That's yeah. why you, it's... They, they've been known to have great sport teams, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So now when you were in Chicago, you you, you became a member of the uh, of the Conception Corporation comedy troupe, and I wanted to talk right. to you a little bit about that because that group kind of was in the same vein as Firesign Theater and, and some of the more surreal groups that came out of that time. Tell us about that experience. Well, uh,
2: two, two fellows, uh, a guy named Howard R. Cohen, Oliver Sholem, which means Rick, Ray Scott, and Blanche in Latin, he and... Uh, Another second citizen uh, named Ira Miller, who's also deceased, uh, and I uh, started writing, you know, funny stuff that we that we could put on an album and sell. And I had this uh, electric harpsichord that I really liked, and I uh, we in a sense traded the electric harpsichord at uh, a recording studio called Paragon for the album. He just basically said, I I really like the harpsichord. I'll trade you an album if you could come here and and, uh, record it. And we loved doing it, and we had a great time. The the fellow who handled the business end of the Conception Corporation, Jeff Began, he found a way to sell it eventually to Atlantic Records because it it was, you know, we would have taken a dime, a penny, a shekel, a sou, a farthing, anything to get it out there and and it, it worked, and then we had modest sales, and the format on radio at the time allowed you to put in little interstitials. So, you know, we could put in something like the Acme Artificial Limb uh, commercial. like, go to Acme if you can't get ahead. It won't cost you an arm and a leg, and we'll never give you the finger. <laughs> you know, really stupid stuff like that Because that You know, that, that, uh, in, in the time, in the period When we could play records from albums You could have long solos and all of that that's, that's all changed But uh, we had, there was a niche that we filled and, and it worked great We did a total of three albums with Atlantic
0: yeah. And we had a lot of fun. And you also had the chance to work with um now here's here's a guy that whose name doesn't come up that often. He's kind of a footnote and all but forgotten outside of, you
2: know, deep
0: comedy circles, but uh the great Severn Darden. He, 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 he Yeah, you
2: know, every time I think about him I, I, I crack up. One one time we were writing the screenplay with uh the guys in the concorp and and with severin and severin uh his wife suggested that he go out and get some food for us and and so we could have a meal while we were writing and uh he said well what do i get and she said get whatever looks good and he came back with seventeen dollars worth of sponges (laughs) well they looked good he said they looked really good and that's He is very. (laughs) He he, he still has. There's still an album. You can find some of his albums. He had an album called The Metaphysics Lecture. Yes, yes. Which was, was, was brilliant. And, you know, he was at the time of Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And everyone, hands down, referred to to Severn as the true genius. Yeah, he, he was. was. He, he, he truly was, and he was also famous for kind of pranks. They they wouldn't uh, let him into uh, the Playboy Club because he didn't have a tie. This is before they it was just membership only. So he went back to uh, University of Chicago and got his Rolls Royce and a cape and a top hat. <laughs> and uh, he, he drove back, to, I think What was it on. I'm, I'm trying to remember what street Walton it might have been Walton. Yeah, right off Michigan
0: Michigan Avenue there, uh-huh.
2: Right, you get a better memory than me. And he, uh, he, they, they took his rolls and said, "Right this way, right this way." And they tried to take his hat; he wouldn't give it up, or the cape. And they, they found a table for him because they were duly impressed. And uh, he took the hat off and the cape, and he was naked. Um. <laughs> So this was like life as
0: performance. That's how Severin lived. You know,
2: that's exactly the way. There's a great, um, great chapel. I guess it's a Goldberg Chapel. I don't know at the University of Chicago, and he broke in there one night. And he was an organ player, and uh, he broke in and he started playing the organ. And uh, the University of Chicago security police came in and attempted, you know, to remove They started yelling, stop, stop. And we ran up on the altar and yelled, Sanctuary!
0: Sanctuary! <laughs> It says a lot about the, the mind behind these things because you're just sitting one day and say, "What should I? Be, you know what I need to do today? I need to get naked under a cape and top hat and drive a Rolls Royce to get into the Playboy Club. Yeah. Uh, that's just right. beautiful. There was a sense of anarchy in the times of, of, you know, of fun anarchy of just yeah, breaking all the rules of seeing what we could do to make life enriched and special. And, and I think uh, you miss that in artists these days. You know, there's I, there's artists getting so. in trouble, but they're not being creative
2: (laughs) you're you're right you're absolutely right and there was a single it's memory serves there was this kind of patch between the first the members of the first uh, second city troop that you could pretend to shoot one of the members and they would have to to fake a death scene no matter where it was and you can imagine those guys doing it to each other in, in public and public transportation. No matter what, right. yeah. No matter what. And, of course, do it as as bravely and as dramatically as
0: possible. Yeah, great stuff. Well, now, when you worked with Belushi and Aykroyd in the Blues Brothers, you were swept up into this cultural phenomenon, and that had to be such a rush and such a... It had to be an adjustment for anybody who was part of that, that group. It, it, was, it was just...
2: Uh, surreal in its uh, lack of reality because it's my hometown. I'm back in my hometown. I've always been a uh, fan of the blues and and really loved the band and the band members. Steve Cropper and Doug Dunn were people that I, I met when I was producing a, a free music show in Grant Park. Called um, free R and B, free rhythm and blues, and I just loved it. it. Was you know the greatest rhythm section of all time. Yeah. And to so, so hang with those guys and to be part of the inner circle with them because the partying never stopped. You know, John and Dan opened a bar across from Second City. And you could go in there, and, and it was a, wasn't really a bar. It was a kind of a club or a hangout where you could go in, and, and they had this bogus way of trying to get reimbursed for the booze that everybody tried. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could buy a coupon, like for a dollar, and drink all night. You said, "Well, I'm not paying for anything. I, I bought a coupon just to confuse the police." <laughs> well, they, the police eventually shut it down. Yeah, right. it was was bogus you know but it, it was fun and I'd heard stories about uh Dan Ackbride going, going out to a dump and trying automatic weapons with the police because he loved the police department. His father, you know, was in the, uh, very high up in the, in rank in the uh, Canadian mountains. Yeah, the Mounties, right. Yeah. And so I, I, hear that at the time that the police loved to travel around with Dan at night and go out, to the, he'd go out to the dumps and uh, fire automatic weapons.
0: Oh, cool! How cool is that? Well, he was always a great eccentric, Dan Aykroyd, and I think he's amazing. I, yeah, I think he he is. He's a brilliant guy, but he's also had things that interested in him outside of fame, which I think John Belushi could have used a little bit of that sort of thing.
2: Well, I, I think he could. John was kind of like a Roman candle, and and Danny was uh, oh facility uh, Danny w- was also into uh, and still is I think into military accoutrement he was into you know weaponry uh, world you know to tell you you know what the Chinese are building in terms of tanks and what submarine class is available and he wrote a book about uh, extraterrestrials and flying saucers
0: yeah well, he's heavily yeah. into that stuff yeah
2: he liked, he, but so much fun to be around he loved to um, I remember we were headed out to my dad's and uh, we, we went into this grocery store to uh, to get some victuals, and uh, he went uh, in the canine department and got some milk bones and started eating them on the way out <laughs> and, and he said basically fine fine fiber, these are excellent for you, would you like one? I said Dan, I don't think so <laughs> Excellent. I'm fun. Holding off for it, yeah, and and the people, of course, were were gobsmacked. You know, just watching Dan. Of course, he was a huge celebrity at the time, and he would look. Are you? Are you having a pleasant day? Thank you. It's a delight to be here. And then he'd be chewing on his milkbone. Have you tried? Would you like one? You know, he'd offer one to the cashier.
0: What a funny guy. Now, what was what was Belushi like to work with? Was he was he hard to well, work with? He,
2: no, you know, in, in terms of hard to work, no, he basically had more difficulty showing up and being ready to uh, to work as opposed to uh, partying. He liked and he liked plenty of partying and every aspect of it he uh, he, when he showed up and he was in good shape he was you know a consummate pro and knew his lines and knew the character and well both those guys really had it down I mean they could just riff on being themselves, you know, at any time and yeah. make it work. Uh, uh, Johnny had a great heart. He, he was a little kind of a sympathetic, you know, soft hearted guy and it wore his heart and sleeve. And you could be out eating with, with John. And uh, it was a Chinese restaurant, you know, across from Second City, I think it was, maybe Japanese. And, and we'd go there and have a, a couple of beers before a show at Second City. And he, and somebody come over his autograph and he'd say no no sit down sit down what's this? <laughs> is this your girlfriend hey I'm John come on you want a beer come on so what are you guys doing you hanging out what's going on and they were like you know oh, oh, oh how do I act and he was just a regular guy in that regard yeah yeah that's that Chicago connection
0: I think That sit down and yeah, have a beer kind of thing
2: yeah yeah absolutely
0: you know, well, cool. you know, Of course, the the cast of Blues Brothers—you know—you have John Candy and uh, and Henry Gibson and all these.
2: It it was great fun, and uh, as John Landis told me, uh, John Belushi had mentioned to uh, to John Landis, he said, "You know this guy," and this was at a time when, from John Candy's career, wasn't really happening, you know, so much. So he he said, "Hire." Hire John Candy, hire come on, John, hire him. And uh, this is Landis talking. He said, I hired him and, and now I couldn't afford him. John Candy's star started to accelerate and he became very popular. James yeah. Trains and Automobiles, that was wonderful. I mean, all the movies he did were yeah, great. He was a really great actor, yes. Yeah, a lot of fun. He, he was a lot of fun. Great to hang on. I, I was doing a movie with him called uh, Going Berserk that. Uh, David Steinberg uh, another second citizen, directed yeah. and I had a nice scene with him where I was uh, I played the public defender and I was defending uh, John and, and John said to me he said oh, 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 do they have a big trailer for you I, hey, I, hey. I, I don't I don't need a big trailer I just need a little you know a place to change he said no no Mm -hmm. you're my friend you're an important person (laughs) just take off you should have a trailer I said well thank you for thinking of me and I'm here for that but I only need a little (laughs) no you should
0: have you (laughs) need a bigger trailer I'm telling you you need (laughs) a I'm going to get it it's my
2: trailer I said I don't need these but you have to have one because you know you're a star and Funny, funny
0: guy. Well, we're talking to Murphy Dunn, a very prolific artist, both music and acting. You've been in so many things, and you're staying busy. I want to just, as an aside here, what advice do you give to someone who wants to make a living in the entertainment field?
2: Well, luck is obviously an important thing. I remember, and thank you for your kind words, Paul Newman was once asked why he wasn't so impressed with his fame, and he said that... uh, because he knows other actors who are better than he is and they're not working mm. of course it doesn't hurt to look like paul newman <laughs> <laughs> right, right. you know uh, but I, i've been very fortunate I, I kind of because i could play the piano a little bit was in the right place at the right time and did some movies and and wrote some music for a couple and and you know had had fun, and I kind of was the go-to guy. I remember doing a phrase, and they just said, "No, well, we'll offer you the part. Just come yeah. on in." And and that's uh, that's how lucky I was, you know. So so I would suggest and and remark that if you can do anything, uh, work on it, and especially in the field of music, if you could write songs or do impressions, work on dialects. All, all those things are, are pluses for for any actor, and and if you can do that, then uh, you got to got a shot. I wouldn't go into the business because you wanted to make money.
0: Yeah, right. you got to love the work. you got to love the work.
2: <laughs> you got to love the work and, yeah. and have fun doing it and take every job that's offered to you. Well,
0: an interesting part of your history was your roommate being Peter Boyle. That had to be exciting.
2: Every time he'd come to L.A., he'd call me up and ask if he could crash at my house and I was uh, pleasantly yeah, I'm surprised and happy about that. Yeah, he's a very, very funny guy. And there were a couple of different periods. There was uh, Peter when he was uh, kind of a wild and crazy guy, uh, when alcohol, you know, was uh, a prime mover in his life. And then... After that, he he told me, uh, I remember him telling me that the greatest gift in in the world you can give to the world is a sober Irishman. And that's when he married and and had a family and... uh, he was even more successful. He, he was a one, wonderful guy, and he, he introduced me to Mel Brooks. And uh, Pete w- was kind of, a cra- kind of a crazy guy, and, and he'd wake you up in the in the morning you're sleeping, and then he'd nudge you, and then he'd be over, over you. And, and you'd look up, and there be Peter Boyle with a butcher's knife in, in his hand. <laughs> Just for laughs, you know.
0: Just waking up with a butcher knife gets you going. Yeah. The- yeah. so, and he, 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 he introduced brought, you to Mel Brooks. Works, right?
2: Yeah, he uh, he was doing, well I knew Mel from uh, Silent Movie, I had a small part and we got a chance to meet Marty Feldman who was a crazy guy, but uh, yeah, he I, he said, uh, do you want to come down to the uh, said he was doing Young Frankenstein. I said, sure, I'd love to. So um, went down there and we were outside the sound station. and Pete had been there earlier because he had so much makeup to put on and uh, this is when he turned into being a very sober business like well he was always a, a business like actor and his father was an actor in fact yeah, Pete had uh annually. I can't remember what his father's first name was, but he always took an ad out in the, in the trades in, in memoriam. He was dead. it was an actor. But Pete's standing outside uh, with me, and here comes Mel, and, and Pete says, uh, Pete, uh, I said, uh, Mel, this is my, my friend, Murphy Dunn. Murphy Dunn! That's like Ivy Cohen. You have two last names. What's wrong with you? Don't forget about the Irish. Come on in time. show you how to make a movie. Come on! Stick with the juice Do here Come here We'll go we'll make a movie yeah, he's, he's always been I I saw him recently He he's still As he describes himself He still has his Peppy ways
0: Okay okay yeah he's definitely a fireball and you auditioned um you you kind of played with him you played the piano while you were auditioning oh,
2: oh right in high anxiety right right yeah. i almost forgot about it. yeah i was sent in to see him to go to the 20th century fox and uh he said come here sit sit, sit. no you're good we know you're fun come on sit, sit sit on the sectional, the the divan, the, the couch that thing over there good Sit there. Now I wrote the song and with Johnny Morris and I, and I sing the song and you sit on the couch and pretend to play. I said, okay, go ahead. And he goes, high anxiety. <laughs> and I mined an arpeggio. He said, "Check out, the job? You know exactly where the arpeggio goes. <laughs> Jackie, you gotta give your size, your size is outside, we'll see on the set. It's wonderful, it's done. And, and I said, "No, I've got more. Said, keep singing. I said, Madeline comes here. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. so he's it's useless to say. And I look at poor Madeline's supposed to be Who like, oh, is oh, is this guy? He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. He's better than Tanaka. Mm-hmm. And Melon goes, that's funny, 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 forget it. It's my scene, not you. <laughs> he, he, yeah. he, and he was just he's, hes so much fun to be around he, he can make you know any normal day just like riding a roller coaster
0: yeah and he seems like hes he's got such a beautiful heart and he really wants people to be happy around him I, you never hear any That's, like mean stories about Bell Brooks no, no, you know no. so
2: as, a, as a matter of fact when uh, we were doing that one of the actors was having uh, a hard time with his lines and turned to Barry Levinson who was one of the writers of anxiety and he said he's having a hard time with it and yeah, he says he can't get the joke right and uh, but Mel is you know, smart enough to know that if he pressures him it's going to get worse so they're trying to make him relax trying to make an actor relax and it is a stressful pressure filled situation when you're you know when about fifty people are depending upon every one of your words, and the light man is quiet, and the, the sound man is quiet, tell us about the enzymes with the active ingredients. Well, we're, we're a bunch of uh, lunatics. <laughs> um, the the guys are very experienced in what they do, and we we have, you know, it's just really a, a fun group of people who music that are is lyrically based. You know, like you take. I'll well, just give you a, a verse. Uh, uh, I'm sitting on a cactus couch, shooting crafts with Chewbacca, who ain't no slouch. When in walks the barber of Seville. I said, "Take a little off the top and tape it to your windowsill." <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a little I guess, surreal. Yeah. It's, uh, a, a little crazy and uh, it's lyrically based on and I was speaking of lyrical, I read something the other day that was kind of interesting it was Federico Fellini um, was talking about his life and you know the famous uh, sure. uh, Italian surrealistic director uh, amazing. and Fellini and said uh, uh, that his mother wanted him to be a bishop his father wanted him to be an engineer but he is content to be just an adjective
0: Fellini esque, yes. Fellini. Fellini You know, and and you talk about the different styles of directors. I I once read an interview with Woody Allen where he was talking about how he likes calm on the set, and and Fellini could only work with chaos surrounding him on the set. Right. He,
2: it's weird that, that that there are many different kinds of directors, and, and there's a guy named Howard Koch who was it. Fabulous, so I worked at Paramount with him once, and he uh, he told me that he felt as if actually Howard was one of the writers of uh, I think The Maltese Falcon. Uh, he said that to be a director, you have to be a little crazy. Yeah, and, and I and I think and I think you do, and you have to know when to to be crazy, when not to be crazy, and so many personalities you have to juggle. And so many egos, and this town is filled with egos.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and weirdos. But that's okay. That makes sense.
2: <laughs> so how, yeah, can it makes people, it how
0: can people get the music for the enzymes with the active ingredients? Is it well, iTunes? you
2: can you can go to yes, you can go to CD Baby. Okay, and and, and preview any of the, any of the tunes we've got. Uh, so, some of the uh, some of the tunes that are mine just don't don't make the cut. I've got one. Called Will You Think of Me When You're Under Him? Which is kind of the country song. Nice. And the guys go, Oh, no, this is for not that audience,
0: Murphy. It's ah, for the live show, right? The Vegas show. That's for the live show. Yeah, yeah you
2: know, it does work on a live show because people like to laugh. Yeah.
0: And of course, uh, your daughter proves that the talented apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Tell us about what your daughter's up to.
2: My daughter, uh, Veronica Dunn, is the co-star of a new Disney series called Casey Undercover. And uh, there's a Disney star named Zendaya. The cast is all African-American except my daughter, so I'm happy to say she stands out. <laughs> there you go, yeah. <laughs> She's the only honky on the show. She's the token and honky, I like it. She's the token honky. They, they're shooting a total of 26 for this season Uh, three have aired there will be another one it's uh, on the Disney Channel uh, Sunday nights at 830 great start absolutely
0: and like Peter Boyle when I get to LA I'll just ring you up and stay at your house (laughs) wait a
2: minute okay
0: (laughs) it's a pleasure Murphy and you stay well and uh, wish our best to your uh, daughter Veronica and your family and we'll, we'll talk to you real soon
2: yours as well thanks Michael God bless
0: to Mono Happening.